Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I'm going to be talking to Asla Aydin Tashbash about Turkey. Lots of reasons to talk about Turkey. Most recently, within the last week, President Erdogan has called snapping actions and has decided to go to the polls almost two years ahead of the scheduled elections in Turkey. Um, so we'll be talking about that. But other reasons to talk about Turkey are that the European Commission has come out with unusually negative and f- frank uh, accession report. And most importantly, maybe out of the three reasons, is the fact that Asla Aydin Tashbash has written a very, very important power audit of EU-Turkey relations called the Discreet Charm of Hypocrisy, which calls for uh, a rethink of how we think about the whole relationship between the European Union and Turkey and has lots of fascinating data from researchers in every single one of the EU member states on the relationship between the EU and Turkey. But as we are, like everyone else, prisoners of the news cycle, why don't we start with the elections, Asla? Why don't you tell me um, what's happening, why President Erdogan has, has called the elections so much earlier than we thought, and what does it mean? Why does it matter? Hi, Mark. Good to be here. And um, we're talking about Turkey again. And it's almost strange to be at the center of all this. We keep talking about Turkey in different contexts, whether it's Syria, you know, tensions with Germany, tensions with United States, and now this. Uh, it, there's never a dull moment here. Sometimes it's a bit too much, but this really did come as a surprise to many people. Uh, he has been saying, Turkish President Erdogan has been saying for months now that he's not going to have early elections. It's over. He said, I am in charge until November 2019. But his smaller, uh, basically, coalition partner, uh, de facto coalition partner, ultranationalist MHP, has called for early elections. And Erdogan had to go along and went along for a number of reasons namely Turkey's economic situation. Things are not looking uh, very good right now. And the government is able to keep going for a little longer, but not for a year and a half. That's becoming very clear to anyone who has a basic understanding of unemployment and inflation and high interest rates and current account deficit, all being very high in the Turkish case. And secondly, the country is extremely tense. I mean, today is a national holiday. We had a celebration at the Turkish parliament, for example, the usual bureaucratic stuff. But, you know, Erdogan left in a huff and the opposition parties are, soccer games are tense. They turn into, you know, sort of small scale protest events. And then, you know, it's this tension about, 2019, what will happen, who will run against him. I think it almost reached the level that it was difficult to sustain this level of tension in the country. From afar, uh, Turkish president looks extremely powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent. And he certainly is omnipotent and omnipresent, but at the same time, he really does have 
very serious vulnerabilities in terms of being re-elected with 51%. This is the first time we're going to have elections under this new presidential system we have. We don't even have a proper election law, to be very honest with you. A lot of things are we're scrambling. I think the parliament is supposed to meet this week and finalize some of the sort of remaining laws for uh, elections, how to hold elections under the new system. But it's decided now, June 24th, uh, hopefully the laws and regulations will follow. But June 24th, we're going to have the first leg of a two-tier two system. And uh, Erdogan, in order to continue to be a president, has to attain 51% of the vote or his contender. So, but you can have several different rounds. We're going to have two rounds. Ours is not just a hybrid, but it's it's a bit if it's a bit too hastily put together of a system. It's clear because you know how about donation? Who gets to donate? What about if you're running as an independent? All of these things are not clear to anybody right now. But the idea initially was to do something like a semi-presidential system like the French have. It ended up being something much more powerful than any other presidential system around the world in terms of being very weak on checks and balances. But a lot of gray areas. And uh, I think the French system is still uh, you know, very different because of regional government, regional powers and, and a strong parliament. And ours is almost certain to have a weaker and parliament. You say that he's a lot weaker than uh, from inside than he looks from the outside and that there's a worry that he couldn't carry on till 2019. So where does the opposition come from? Well, um, the opposition has enough numbers to mount a real challenge to Erdogan in terms of the mathematics of it, but they are fractured politically as always, as usual. And uh, it's very difficult to think of them running on uh, the same platform. But something quite miraculous is happening, by the way, over the past 48 hours. This is very new. It wasn't even in the report uh, we did on the uh, snap elections last week. There is talk of the opposition uniting behind uh, a joint candidate. And there's even chatter about Abdullah Gül, former president potentially uh, being the, the, the name the opposition rallies around. This is too soon to know because it's a bit like the Rubik, uh, Rubik's Cube in the sense that if you have the ultranationalists and you have the, you know, the secularists, hardline secularists don't like it. If you find someone that has the support of hardline secularists, then Kurds feel he is too nationalist. <laughs> you know, the nature of getting together the other 50% uh, it's very difficult. But Abdullah Gül, of course, has been uh, always been a popular figure. In fact, uh, in most polling data I've seen, starting from 2005, he's had uh, greater popularity than Erdogan. The problem is, does he want to run against his own party? Also, and in terms of style, he's always been more of a sort of a, you know, gentleman in, in, in sorry, sort of a, you know, really uh, statesmanly in politics. But Turkish politics is very rough, especially around election period. And after having 
ended his political career, political career uh, as the sort of head of state after a presidential term? Does he really want to roll up his sleeves and get into the this sort of muddy scene? But we, we'll find out. But there is some pressure mounting on Abdullah Gül. That's for sure. So you you did a very quick run through the other political forces there. But do you want to maybe um, unpack it a bit more and say how strong they all are in relative terms? Because also some of those forces are in government with, with Erdogan at the moment, the ultra-nationalists. So the ultra-nationalists, they used to be around 15%, but significantly diminished in vote, something around like 5%, 5 6% right now. This is one of the oldest parties in Turkey. But Erdogan does need that 5-6% in order to patch up a winning 50-51%. Uh, that, that was the coalition that ran together for, uh, for in last April's referendum. They barely made it, barely got 51%. And since then, uh, things have not been brighter in terms of the economics. One thing that has been brighter in, uh, for the incumbent party is the Afrin operation, the Turkish incursion into Syria and sort of a overall a, a, a dr nationalist drumbeat, nationalist vote being galvanized and not just in, in politics, but also this endless, you know, TV dramas and uh, and new uh, films, the feature films that are coming out about various Ottoman era conquests or exploits and whatnot. So it's it's a very constant drumbeat, and the government believes there is uh, it can capitalize on that mood. How real that is, we don't know because Turkey is not. Uh, Turkish media is not as diverse as before. Uh, we don't know if p people are telling the pollsters what, you know, their real intentions. So we really will have to watch and see. But in terms of the other important actors, there's the Kurds, of course. They've been under quite severe, uh, you know, sort of, uh, they've really suffered under the security policies, uh, security-oriented po oriented policies since the coup. And, uh, you know, the leader of the, the former leader of the party is in jail, along with uh, almost a dozen deputies. And they also have their mayors, most of their mayors in jail. However, this repression has not really worked in the sense that their votes are not falling. They don't seem to be falling uh, below 10 percent. 10 percent is the threshold you need to enter Turkish parliament. And but... You know, they will really wait and see who's saying what. Their inst I think the Kurdish instinct right now, the Kurdish party's instinct is, is, is sort of to go for an anti-Erdogan candidate, but they're not going to accept anyone. If the person running against Erdogan is, you know, it happens to be an ultra-nationalist, even more sort of uh, nationalist than Erdogan, I think they'll think twice. So that is an important chunk. But because of the atmosphere that's being created, since over the past two years, uh, the other opposition parties don't really dare touch Kurds. It's they're sort of there; they're taken into account, but no one wants to have a photo op with them because of the government propaganda about Kurd Kurdish party being terrorist. So that's ten percent there, waiting to see what will happen. And then the two other important actors is. A new leader on the right, her name is Meral Akşener, formerly with MHP, formerly from a nationalist background. Uh, 
and uh, she has formed her own new party. It wasn't clear whether she would be able to, she would be allowed to take part in elections. She's polling around 10%, but is very much pushing uh, to for representation. And there is this swinging, the very sizable swinging vote in Turkey. Voters, undecided voters are around 30% in this country at the moment. That's unprecedented. You know, and they are from all walks of life. They're not just secularists or they're not just urban professionals. They are also conservatives who are not really happy with the direction of the country or not really happy about the economy, but don't really have their person. So uh, she is certainly going to be uh, trying to get some of that vote. And of course, you have finally the biggest chunk in the opposition is good old CHP, which is Republican People's Party, the Kemalist secularist bloc. Uh, they are effectively playing an important role. They have to set the whole game. They have to be, they have to set out the, 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 the sort of, if there is ever going to be a major mega coalition against Erdogan, they have to do it. It's very difficult balancing act for them. For example, if they were to pick someone like Gül, Abdullah Gül, some of their, some people, hardline secularists in their constituency are very resentful of Gül. If they were to go for somebody like Akshenar, somebody very nationalist, you know, then they risk losing Kurds. But they are the ones that, historically speaking, are in this a very uh, critical role right now in in, in Turkey. And, and how much support do they have at the 25%. moment? 25%. Okay. 25%. So, so, so there's, the country's still basically a 50-50 country. But it's very much so. Very much so. And what are the main issues which are going to be deciding the election? I think the economy will be a major issue. While we're not going through a crisis yet, people have gotten much poorer. Uh, lira, the lira has depreciated. And to be very honest with you, Turkey's, the tensions uh, with uh, Turkey's uh, allies, Western allies, and it's uh, the fact that it's still run under a state of emergency is impacting the economy. We have no foreign investment coming. And uh, our Turkish president says, you know, that and he makes a point of saying this publicly, this is got the state of emergency has got nothing to do with investments. But the reality is it does. And uh, this is a country that does need investments. Uh, it, 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 uh, the trade, Turkey's trade with Europe has not suffered. It's very important. Uh, it's not suffered on, you know, despite a year of ups and down in relations with with uh, your in relations with Europe, but it the inflation is really high, and current account deficit is extremely high, and unemployment is rising. But worse, there is the fear that government's high growth model is not sustainable. We're hearing this from even people like Deputy Prime Minister Mehmet Shimshek. Uh, you know, who says don't borrow in don't borrow in dollars in foreign currency because, you know, the depreciation is very clear. So I think one of the primary reasons for the government to want to hold elections now is because it will be very tough to get the, the, amount, the, the votes they'll get around this time next year. It's, that's very clear. It's very it's going to be very difficult to sustain Erdogan's model of high growth 
even with government spending, because it's becoming more difficult to borrow. Okay. I'd like to pivot quite soon to, to your power audit and talk about what all this means for EU-Turkey relations. But how much are the foreign policy questions playing in the elections? I mean, are people worried that Turkey's becoming isolated? And is there any nervousness about the deterioration of relations with the US, with the EU? within Turkey? I really struggle with this question because people say, you know, when we had the, uh, first of all, elections are always periods where, the, you know, the Turkish officials tend to pick one foreign enemy <laughs> and then we go after them sort of throughout the cycle and then get around busy trying to fix relations with that country. And last time it was, you know, during the referendum, it was tensions with the Netherlands, uh, with the Dutch government and Germany that became a key feature of domestic politics here. And the conventional wisdom is that, you know, it does help a little bit here and there, one or two points, and then those one or two points are very important in this election. However, uh, the government did really find out that, you know, having these fights are very costly for economic reasons and all sorts of other reasons, and, it be, uh, and also in terms of Turkey's global standing. It's not fun to be kicked out of the European Union accession process, even if uh, it's, the process is not uh, advancing. You know, this was not something they wanted. And so they're trying not to pick a public feud with a major European uh, power. And also, you know, I also see a lot of, and here's my confusion, Consistently in polls, Turkish citizens also say they want Turkey to be a European country. They want to see rule of law. I mean, that includes AKP voters, by the way. So, you know, is it inconceivable for someone to run on a bit of a pro-Western, pro-European ticket to, to, to actually turn foreign policy into an advantage? I think times are changing. People are a little bit too tired of this sort of constant tension, period of tension, is my sentiment. Okay, so why don't we um, go more deeply into the EU-Turkey relationship. Um, talks, uh, so Turkey applied first, I think, in 1963. Um, talks started in 2005, 14 years ago. Um, don't seem to be going anywhere very fast. You spent some time looking in quite a lot of detail, not just at the general EU-Turkey relationship, but you had researchers in every single EU member state looking at the bilateral relationships between uh, each member state and Turkey. And you published this big report, which you called the discrete charm of hypocrisy. Can you tell us about the, the hypocrisy, the charm and its discrete character? Well, so the title is a play on word, you know, Louis Bunyel's the title of Louis Bunyel's film, The Discreet Charm of Bourgeoisie. But what really got me uh, on the theme of, what got me going on the theme of hypocrisy was something Emmanuel Macron said when he held, when he held a joint press conference with Erdogan back in, on January 5th in Paris. He was the first Western European leader to invite Erdogan after a long hiatus in the in, in sort of in Turkish European relations, and it was an important summit. And when Erdogan brought up, "Oh, we've been waiting at the doorstep of Europe for for a long time, and you know, if you don't move forward, we're going to think of our options, etc." Macron said, "Well, you know, let's 
drop the hypocrisy. I'm paraphrasing the exact sentences in the opening uh, paragraph of the report, but it's not coming to me. But he said something like, we must do away with the hypocrisy of thinking that accession process will move forward. And I thought, wow, I mean, in, certainly in the think tank community and in diplomatic circles, everyone knows that it's at a standstill. People often refer to it as a coma, a train wreck, a frozen, etc. But no leader had come out and said this. Usually the tendency is to sort of pay lip service to the great advances and, you know, and why don't you re return to the reform process. No one quite comes out and says, by the way, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So I, I, I found that it perspective to be very fresh. We already had dispatched researchers in 28 uh, member states. This is one, you know, power audit uh, is one of the hallmarks of ECFR. We've done it with uh, Russia and China and other powers, I, I guess, right? I mean, it's been done several times before, but uh, when the data started coming in, I so it was very clear that um, several things that hypocrisy was made what, what exactly what made this press process work in the sense that obviously the people that we were surveying talking to were uh, essentially the elites in uh, 28 member states but the elites were the proponents of Turkey's uh, accession process and membership saying we don't think Turkey is fit to be a member, but we think it's very important to keep Turkey in the process. But also admitting largely that, in, that they're public opposed Turkish membership. Um, there were other issues. For example, um, Turkey is, not, is well below Copenhagen criteria. The most, uh, so Copenhagen criteria, the, the benchmarks on human rights, democracy and the rule of law. Exactly. It's, it's, it's a word that most Turkish citizens would know, but if you're already in the European Union or if you're one of the founding members, you don't have to worry about these benchmarks. But most countries in the enlargement in this in, in process actually know Copenhagen criteria, where a country fits, where it fails, etc. And it's been particularly a big buzzword in Turkey because we've had challenges on uh, in terms of our democracy and reform process but uh, so most going back to the power study another interesting caveat was that elites tended to think that Turkey was below the Copenhagen criteria but something like 57 no even higher I think something significant number of member states thought that EU should not be more outspoken on the human rights front so there were these issues that were that made me think that it's a limbo but the limbo is is is, is what is it's the journey they used to say it's the journey not the destiny in Turkey about Turkey's uh, accession process, but it's rather now it's the limbo, not the destiny or the journey. So that's... Uh, so, were, <clears throat> so were there any member states that still want Turkey to join the European Union? There were uh, very interesting differences. For example, smaller member states seem to want, uh, seem to defend the accession process. For example, Malta or Estonia or Slovenia, where Turkey had clearly campaigned really well and ha was establishing 
economic bridges. They wanted to advance the accession process more than the big powers. Poland, in principle, is not for Turkish membership, but they want the accession process and they want the accession process to move forward. And in terms of having a counterbalance to Germany and the European scene. So I call this fear or greed factor. In other words, countries have different reasons for wanting Turkey on board or in the process that can be summed up either fear or greed. Let me give you an example of fear. Uh, For example, Greece or uh, Bulgaria, neighboring countries, they feel that a Turkey left out of the EU structure is uh, essentially has the potential to pose more of a national security threat while having a whole list of complaints about Turkey as it is and you know blocking in the in the case of Cyprus blocking many of the accession chapters on the other hand fearing a Turkey that would be frozen out of the process a lot of contradictory uh, stances also with Turkey I mean the Turkey has its own contradictions too Greed is, there's a lot of, uh, don't underestimate Turkey's economic, <laughs> don't underestimate Turkey's economic potential. The fact that it's, this is a huge market for Europe. This is a, the fact that, you know, this is a huge invest, uh, Europeans invest in Turkey and uh, trade with Turkey and want to keep doing that. I mean, in the past, in the heydays of the accession process, Turkey was called the China of Europe by the economist, and it's not quite that at the moment. Um, but still, clearly, uh, Spain and Italy and um, you know several other smaller states really feel that economic relationship must, must not suffer. And to an extent, even Germany, definitely uh, the Netherlands is one of the biggest investors in Turkey. Is a country that has the big, you know biggest headache in, in its relations with Turkey. That is the Netherlands. Uh, and so uh, I talk about a situation, a scenario, a possibility of sort of perhaps you know moving away in, uh, from the accession process, not trashing it, not suspending it, but, you know, sort of not focusing on it anymore and finding alternative means of relating to Turkey and dealing with Turkey and uh, alternative frameworks for a strategic alliance between Turkey and Europe. And one of these is customs union. Turkey has customs union with Europe, but it's not enough for either side. Needs to be upgraded. What was very clear from uh, the Turkish referendum, as you said, was that Erdogan uh, drew quite a lot of uh, uh, political um, uh, support from having a bad relationship with the Netherlands and and Germany. And this was reciprocated because some people think that um, Mark Rutte, the the leader of the the Dutch government, um, managed to win the Dutch elections by getting into a fight with President Erdogan. And certainly in Germany, both Martin Schulz and Angela Merkel threatened to um, uh, suspend negotiations with Turkey during the election campaign. And uh, the other successful electoral politician recently was uh, Sebastian Kurz, the Chancellor of Austria, who's made a big fuss about how Turkey uh, should never be in the European Union and how the accession process should be suspended. 
why do you think uh, so little has happened on the EU side to, to actually make good on those promises about suspending the accession process? And is it more helpful to those people if they want to be able to have occasional fights with Turkey for domestic political reasons to have an accession process still going on so they can threaten to stop it? <laughs> That's an interesting theory, I think. Uh, keeping accession uh, to keeping Turkey in the accession process as uh, as a sort of a seasonal whipping boy that comes in handy around the time of elections but but there is certainly some of that going on I mean we have seen you watch the debate between Schulz and Merkel during the German elections last September and you would think that the entire German election is about what to do on Turkey it's a referendum on Turkey and it wasn't but it consumed such a so much space in the room. Similarly, in Austria, Netherlands, even Brexit, Turkey ended up being a big topic for both sides of the of the argument. And uh, but therein is the divide between the elites and politicians. I mean, we've seen this again and again, even with Brexit and with with the uh, with the British uh, Foreign Minister. You know, you people tend to. Um, criticize Turkey very heavily and take up very sort of positions very critical of Erdogan because it really does wonderful in domestic politics. And then the moment they are in power, they uh, they turn around and tell Ankara, where were we? We'd like to really fix relations. I mean, this is, we've seen this with the Netherlands as well. Uh, and uh, we, we also see this in Turkey. This, hap- this hypocrisy is very, has been very much the future of Turkish politics over the past year. I mean, the, the amount of effort that went into fixing the relationship with Germany was so much more than the, the, the ease with which that relationship was trashed trash during the uh, election cycle. So it's a very strange pattern. But we... So should maybe, yeah, because we, we're running out of time, I think it would be good to get a bit more sort of specific about how to... Uh, move forward from a European perspective. In the past, people have said that the EU got a lot of leverage through the accession process and that the way forward was opening more chapters and also through having reports from the European Commission uh, which were critical of Turkish misdeeds. It seems that that's no longer true anymore. So the vogue now is to think more about negative conditionality and people have been taking things away from Turkey such as some of the pre-accession money and other kinds of things and, and showing that Turkey can't get access to all the benefits of its relationship with the EU if it uh, continues to disregard the EU's interests and to be so rude about European governments. Um, where do you see um, European leverage over Turkey developing in the future? I see the customs union upgrade as one area where leverage, where there's a possibility for European leverage. In in all honesty, I think the relationship right now is not a real accession process. First of all, it's frozen as a process in any case, but it's more like privileged partnership, which is a dreaded term from the point of view of Turkey, Turkish diplomats, because 15 years ago, when it was introduced in Germany, Turks said, no, 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 we don't want second tier membership. But this has now become a reality and almost in uh, a homeostasis of some sort in, in the uh, in the relationship. So, uh, but c- going back to your question, customs union upgrade is, is a key area of focus. Uh, I 
Um, I've had issues in terms of how to deal with the human rights debate because I do, obviously it has to be part of the Turkish-European dialogue. But the idea, is, but let us not fool ourselves thinking that producing annual progress reports and including all the human rights problems in Turkey in that report is having an impact in Turkey. In fact, it's not. It's not having an impact. Uh, so I don't think the accession process is having much of an impact on the human rights situation at all. I'm pointing to, uh, and I, I know some European diplomats get upset when I said, say this, but I am pointing to the Council of Europe as a, as a place that can have an impact and develop benchmarks that are maybe a fresh perspective through the European Court of Human Rights also. Turkey does really... Uh, value the relationship with the Council of Europe, but also with in terms of Erdogan's relationship with Yagland. So uh, it's an area I'm pointing. And the fact that human rights is a constant and everyday uh, mention in the accession process or in, or in bilateral meetings between Turks and Europeans does not really matter to me if it's not going, if it's not having an impact. Okay. So and on uh, the customs union, because you say that that's maybe the, the single most attractive thing to Turkey. What kinds of things do you think Europeans should be calling for in, uh, in uh, as a condition for advancing? On well, that? Uh, recently I've been hearing from German politicians that, for first of all, European Parliament is very opposed to starting negotiations on the customs union, but they could be persuaded. And I, I, I've been hearing from German politicians the idea that lifting the state of emergency should be a precondition for start of customs union negotiations. And I have to say, this idea is very appealing in the sense that there, there's millions of Turks, if not the majority, who, do, who want the state of emergency lifted. So it's not like having a long list, laundry list of all the human rights problems in Turkey and in a vague manner. It's very specific. You want the negotiations to start, well, maybe lift the state of emergency. And then I think that would give an impetus uh, for uh, the industry as well to galvanize behind an EU <clears throat> process once again. That sounds very much like the old um, EU-Turkey relationship, where it's all about Europeans trying to get Turkey to change its domestic governance rather than the kind of new transactional relationship, which was embodied in the, the refugee deal, where Europeans start with their interests and then ask Turkey to, to act in a way which advances European interests. This is not the old relationship in the sense that we're not talking about reform across the board, number of, you know, an endless number of uh, fields where... Europeans want progress. It's more of a give and take in that regard. It's more transactional and therefore more like the, yes, more like the migration deal, uh, even though there is a human rights component that is more specific and simple. Okay. Um, so that was, uh, was quite an interesting moment to be talking about EU-Turkey relations. We'll obviously come back to you in the run-up to the elections and we'll see how the different political forces that you're talking about um, uh, perform in the, in the elections and what it means for the future of Turkey. And I suspect um, after the elections are over, we will see uh, a return to these questions of EU-Turkey relations and, and how that complicated relationship proceeds. But in the meantime, there is one more thing which I need to do, which is to, to do the bookshelf segment of the podcast. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Asra? Well, I had two books 
both of which I read before, but last night and the night before I was looking through them. Uh, one is Robert Kagan, a book that uh, you have probably read, uh, The World America Made. Well, it, it was a big hit back in 2012 when it came out, but it's sort of interesting to read it. Under as, the, as that world collapses. As the world collapses. He's actually just... And under Trump presidency. He's just written a, a new book called The Jungle Grows Back, <laughs> which maybe shows where his, uh, where his mind is, is moving. Um, great. Um, and um, so what was the other book? Eduardo Galeano. I'm reading it in Turkish, but the Latin American sort of writer, journalist... Uh, the, the the book is uh, small vignettes or small uh, basically narratives extremely amusing to read and w one thing that happens when you go, we are going through a past news cycle is the difficulty of concentrating in no long narratives so it's nice to just pick up a book and be able to read a couple of pages before you fall asleep and this one is El Libro de los Abrazos, which is the book of hugging in the Turkish translation. Fantastic. So on my bookshelf, obviously, at the top of it is The Discreet Charm of uh, Hypocrisy, a power audit of EU-Turkey relations by Asla Aydin Tashbash. We will put links up to all of the publications we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, Please let your friends and acquaintances know about us on social media, or even better, go to the ratings and review page on SoundCloud or iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us and give us a, a review and a rating. But uh, in the meantime, uh, from Asla Antashbash and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hackenposch and our editor is Katarina Botel-Azzinaro. Mm -hmm.